Little ones can be dismissed now for children's worship. We have uh, time prepared for the littlest ones, third grade and below, if you would like to send them out. You don't have to. If you've got a little one that is engaging, and then you can leave them in here. But if you'd like to send them out, you can do that. They're going to the treehouse if you're here for the first time. We're not sending them to the neighbors or down the street or anywhere like that. They're going to the treehouse for a time of worship together. I'm about to pray, and before I pray, I want to challenge you with something this morning. I've been really nervous about this message. I was prepared to preach it last week. It's grown some since then, but I was prepared to preach it as part of our kind of our introductory sermon in the Dib series, uh, but I wasn't, but time didn't allow. Uh, but as I've spent time with it over the week, and as I've prepared even this morning in prayer, and I've had a burden that it, it's, it could potentially be a challenge for you. We're going to look at ten verbs this morning. Ten verbs that the family participates in that all have an impact on another subject, where that subject participates in some verbs. So the challenge this morning is we're going to participate in a little bit of English, and I know that that could potentially be a little bit of a journey for you that you hadn't planned on. But secondly, I'm not sure that we, our minds are accustomed and prepared for ten things. You know, I was thinking, you know, you were kind of accustomed and groomed for three or four things, and then kind of the what's the point. So ten things could be a challenge. It's not going to have really a different impact lengthwise in terms of amount, in terms of the amount of time we spend together. But in terms of your attention spans, I... I realize when I prepare on Sunday mornings that you need to be preparing too. This is a two-way journey, three-way, really. The Lord is in on this, obviously, but you need to be prepared too. So as we pray, pray that you will be attentive in a way that you may have not been before. And pray that you will engage in a way that will change your life. Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, I want to just, uh, on behalf of this body of believers, we want to lift up Van Sickle Baptist Church. I want to lift up Roger Ratliff and uh, just ask you, Lord, to bless that body. Lord, starting with Roger's family, I pray for his marriage, Lord. I pray that he is just overwhelmed with the gospel. I pray that his family has dibs and that his family is not or has not been sacrificed on the altar of ministry. Lord, I pray that uh, he is surprised by grace and uh, undone by a gospel that's almost scandalous. So much so that when he preaches that the word is exposed and a people are grown and changed and amazed by grace and that in the result of that is that you are glorified through an ordinary people. Lord, we pray for this body of Vansicle. We pray that we can be in true partnership with this body and that you'll guard us from ever having a spirit of competition but that we will want great things for that body for your glory and uh, we ask that this morning. Lord, regarding this body, in the next few minutes that we spend time together in the Word, we pray for just a divine attentiveness. I pray for something that might be a little bit different for us, that we can engage this psalm, and that the family will be held up, the wholeness and the beauty of the family and our rich verbs that we have to participate in will be lifted up and that we'll be not crippled or disabled, but we'll be encouraged. Lord, I pray that you'll speak in spite of me. I pray for clarity. Pray for divine attention. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Psalm 96, please. 
It's on page 499 of your pew Bible. Or if you have the English Standard Version in a regular size, it's on page 499. This is the second sermon in what's called the Dib Series, D-I-B-S, where it has to do with the family having dibs, that L3 doesn't have dibs, uh, 3M doesn't have dibs, IBM doesn't have dibs, Eyewitness, every other business, insert what you do in there, it doesn't have dibs, your family has dibs. So we're spending the next few weeks just considering God's view of the family and God's unique interaction with the family. And I think part of the reason I'm troubled this morning is because we're holding up this wholeness of the family, this picture of the family, what it looks like biblically in the Word, and it's a little bit intimidating. (laughs) These verbs, as I'm looking at them, as I've been studying them the last few weeks and as I've been preparing this morning, I'm just intimidated and borderline discouraged. It's kind of like whenever you show up for a new job and the boss comes out and he gives you this job description and you look over that job description and you go, whoo, man, that's a lot of stuff. It's intimidating. You're looking at everything that you're supposed to do in the fullness of your job and you're looking at it in a moment. And in that moment, it's intimidating. But as you really live out hour to hour, day to day in your job setting, you find out that that really intimidating job description It's kind of spread out over time, thankfully. It's kind of like for some of you that may not have a job yet. You might be in school. Uh, It's it's like when the first day of class when you get that syllabus. I I, I know that depression that you enter on that day that you get that syllabus. You're looking it over and you're going, oh my goodness, papers, tests, this is intimidating. This is overwhelming. How can we possibly do this? Psalm 96 is kind of like our syllabus. It's kind of like our job description, but I don't want us to get discouraged. I just want us to see what God's design is for the family, what the job description is for the family. Is the family just supposed to be a bunch of people that kind of cohabitate, that just kind of share a table together, that just kind of fall and exist through life and hope that we minimize conflict and we just kind of exist and hopefully in the end we don't hate each other and we're still on speaking terms? Or is the family supposed to be about something? This Psalm 96 is about that this morning. Let's look at this psalm together. I'm going to read the whole psalm actually down to verse 10, inclusive of verse 10. And then we're going to come back and we're going to pick up and enjoy the verbs. But I first want to point you to the subject of this psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord, our Lord, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, there's a lot of verbs in this 
psalm so far in just those first 10 verses, but we've got to pay attention to who the subject is, who the doer of these verbs is. And you might have some clue in the first verse, it says, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. So there's the appearance that the psalm may be about the earth doing these things. But then when you follow these verbs down, you get down to verse 10, and you really find out who the agent of all these verbs is. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Let's personalize it. Just in your minds and in your hearts here in these, as, as I'm saying this in, these, in this little brief moment, insert your name into this family. Ascribe to the Lord the McGraws. That's what I'm doing. I want to climb in here and I want to see this row that's sitting down here in front of me where there's some McGraws represented here. And I want to sit in this pew with this family as this word is being preached and take some ownership of these verbs because that's who this is about. It's about the family participating in something more than just existing. So let's start with these verbs. There's ten of them. Let me tell you first that these verbs are not suggestions. These verbs are what what are called the Hebrew imperatives. A Hebrew imperative is a command. And really, in Hebrew, it comes across as almost blunt and rude. That's the way it's felt toward me in these last few weeks as I've studied them because they're pretty intimidating, but you've got to see them for what they are. Let's take the word for what it says in the tone and the mood that it's presented and realize these are not suggestions for the family, for the row that's sitting next to you, or for the people that you might be thinking thinking of that are not here, or for the family, young people that you may shepherd in the future. But these are commands. And the imperative, you could put an exclamation point at the end of it. So the first one here is sing, and let's say it like it ought to be understood. Sing, families of the people. There's no mystery about singing. I think we all know what singing is. We just did some of that. To sing is to make music. But here's what you've got to appreciate about song. And this is why and how this invades your den and invades your Thursday morning and invades your Saturday afternoon. Here's what's important about song. You sing about what you enjoy, families. This is why companies write jingles. You may have some jingles that you can think of. A few of them that I thought of when I was a kid was the Wrangler jingle. Here comes Wrangler. He's one tough customer. He knows what he likes when he sees it. That kind of jingle gets in your head, and before long you're thinking, man, i got to get me some Wranglers. (laughs) And then there's Hamburger Helper. It helps you make a great meal. Before long, you hear that jingle, you sing that jingle long enough. There's others. There's Campbell's Soup, mmm, good. There's getting zestfully clean. Before long, you sing about it long enough that you want it. And what they're doing is they're capitalizing on this thing to where it's sort of working backwards. If we sing about it, maybe before long, it'll be something that we desire. Because there's a reality that song and affection have a connection. You sing about what you enjoy. Think about how many young men have written songs about and to their sweethearts while they're courting. Think about how many cowboys have written songs on a cool starry night after a hard day's work that they enjoyed. We sing about what we enjoy. And song is appropriate for the families of God because it captures melody and it captures message into this experience that engages mouth, ear, heart, soul, heartbeat. It it captures the whole thing. 
And song is appropriate for the people of God. It's appropriate for the families of God to sing songs about our greatest delight, and that is our Lord, our shared Lord, Christ Jesus. The family is not just to sing any old thing in any old fashion, though. The family, it says here in this passage, it says that the family is to sing to the Lord a new song. This word new in the original language, in the original Hebrew, means fresh. So families are to sing a fresh song Godward. And what does it mean to sing fresh? First of all, it means to sing newly. It means to sing the old songs that you've sung all your life, but to sing them afresh and sing them anew. There's the potential for us, some of us who've grown up in a church setting, to sing some of the old songs and have great affection for the old songs, but to really be more focused on the melody and the harmony lines than we are on the words. And be more focused on the memories, the sweet memories that it conjures up for that beautiful day in worship last time you sung that song. While those are great things, you've got to appreciate that singing newly, singing anew, engaging an old song anew means to engage the words. It means to engage heart, mind, soul, not focusing on some harmony line, but focusing on the God who's on the receiving end of that song. Crosspoint, these last couple of years, has had a burden for rewriting old hymns. The old hymns of our faith are rich. And we're rewriting them, not necessarily as much because of just that's kind of our style of music. We're writing them, rewriting them so we can sing them newly. So we can gauge them in a new way. For some of you who are kind of frustrated with that, man, I wish they would just sing, sing it like I'm accustomed to. Man, I'm begging you to sing newly. Be okay with learning a new, new tune because it may bring out the riches that you are engaging. The second picture there for singing a new fresh song is to sing a new song, an altogether new song. David is a great example of this. He's the one that wrote this psalm, and he actually wrote the psalm for an occasion in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant had been out of the nation of Israel's hands for some time. It had been with the Philistines. The Philistines didn't have a great experience with it. You can read that story, but eventually it made its way back. And David, was, his burden was to bring it back to Jerusalem. He built a tent for it there, and he wanted to write a whole new song for this event. Any old song just wouldn't do, so he wrote a brand new one. And it probably would have been a whole lot easier to just go with, a regular old familiar song. It's safe. All the people know it. We can really belt it out. But he picked a new song and he wrote it from scratch. And I think it's a new song that provides a special journey. It did for David and it likely did for the people as they're in, able to engage old truths maybe in a new way. They sang a new song. Something I considered as David wrote his new song is that in some way, as he wrote this song and as the people sang it, is they had to linger on these new truths. One of my favorite people that I study periodically and read is John Piper. John Piper, I don't know that he fashions himself much of a poet, but he does write poetry. And having read some of his poetry, I don't really think it's all that good. But the point of it is not the quality of it. The point of it for him is it's part of his worship experience. It's point of, part of his engagement to linger and meditate on truths. I'm working through with the staff right now 
a uh, devotional. It's called Taste and See. It's got 140 meditations from John Piper, and one of those is a word on poetry. Listen to what he says about poetry, which is really just songwriting. He says, Good poetry speaks truth. Not that each line is naked fact, but lines, when taken all together, tell what really is in spite of what may seem to be. There is no doubt that now we see through a glass darkly. Listen, finite and fallen as we are, we need much help to see light. To us, there are dark places in the truth. But who can say in this brief vapor's life or breath of life what light might break upon the soul that looks unwavering and long enough at some dark spot with prayer and pondering and hope that it may turn into a portal for the sun? This is so quickly do we pass over hard words and painful stories in the Bible. But the poet, insert songwriter, insert your family name in here, the Christ-adoring family lingers. And the poet looks and looks and looks at this dark spot until he weeps and rages and then perhaps sees. Then all too imperfectly he tries with words to make the needle point of light more visible for others. To bore the point more wide or press the doubting face against the tiny perforation in the wall of pain, he writes a poem. Insert song. Insert family writes a poem. Family writes a song. We sing newly and we sing a new song. Some occasions that just won't do to sing an old one. Went to Louisiana this week to visit some family. Had a special occasion in my dad's life, so we, we were on our, on our way back on Friday morning. And Christy was doing some schoolwork with the kids in the car. And she was teaching them about adjectives. She was talking with Luke. And we just passed kind of a grove of trees. And Luke, the trees were close enough to the road for Luke to see it. And he looked out the window at the trees. And Christy asked him for some adjectives having to do with those trees. And Luke provided that they were tall and that they were hard. And then Daniel, our four-year-old, started chiming in with some more adjectives. He was able to see the tree with a little more detail and a little more precision. And he provided also that the tree was mossy and that the tree was branchy. And that the tree was strong. And before long, what we realize is the very same tree that we drove by, just in the beholding, just in the lingering, went from being just an ordinary tree to a tall, bare, mossy, branchy, hard, strong, regal tree that all had to do with the beholding. And what I realized is I considered that as we thought the tree was still the same tree, but the family just took the time to enjoy the tree, is that's what the family's supposed to do with God. Is God shouldn't just be God in our families. The family should be about collecting adjectives. We ought to be adjective hunters. We ought to be gathering adjectives like omnipotent, sovereign, holy, powerful, magnificent, gentle, wrathful, long-suffering, just, loving, mysterious, majestic, God. See, he's still the same God. The difference is with the family as we engage him and collect adjectives. That's good songwriting. And that's singing newly and that's singing a new song. Secondly, the family is to bless. Look at chapter 95 of uh, Psalm. 
chapter 95, verse 6. It's on the same page there. I just want to give you this example so you can understand what we're seeing here in the word to bless. The family is to sing and the family is to bless. Look at chapter 95, verse 6. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That word for kneel is the very same word that in chapter 96 is translated bless. And the reason they're not translated the same way is because they're in different contexts. But that picture of kneeling is the picture of being revered. The picture of being honored as the people of God kneel before God, we are enjoying Him. I was thinking about occasions for us to kneel. Hopefully, this is not the only time that we kneel. But I was thinking about a time, an important time in my life, when I knelt before this woman sitting on the front row. And I held her hand, and I shared with her the dreams that I had for our family of having a row of blonde-headed kids together and starting a family together. And that special time that we had together as I knelt before her, I asked her how she felt as I knelt before her, and she felt cherished. She felt honored. She felt blessed. And as we kneel before God's name, as we enjoy our God together, that's got to be some of the things that our Lord feels. He doesn't need those things from us, but yet He enjoys those things of being cherished, of being honored, of being enjoyed. The family blesses God. Next, the family tells. It says, O oh, sing of the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name, kneel before His name. And then the family tells of His salvation from day to day. The word tell means to bear tidings. You may have heard of that in the Christmas story. We bring good tidings This phrase, tell and bear tidings, means to make known his salvation and his plan and his story. And the key in this is is that the telling is from day to day. I asked my kids, I said, what do you think day to day means? And they said, that means every day. I think Bo chimed in with every day. Bo was visiting us, Bo Collins. He said, that means every day. I said, exactly, it doesn't mean Sundays only that we tell and express and bear tidings and make known His salvation. Families, it's a day-to-day sort of thing. I'm reading a book right now. I don't even remember the name of it. Everyday Language or something like that. Everyday Speech. It has to do with the character of the conversation in the people among the people of God in our homes from day to day. The guy starts the book out with this introduction that has the best illustration I've ever heard for what I, where I'm getting at right here. He said that on Sundays, he had these shoes. They were made of patent leather when he was growing up. And these shoes were stiff and uncomfortable. And he would put them on before he went to their church services. And the minute he walked in the house, he ran to his room to shed those uncomfortable shoes and to put on his everyday shoes. And it's such a great picture of what we often do with our language, families. Some of our families, many of our families, and many of our shepherds, the language is void, the conversation is void of all the things that took place when we had those shiny shoes on. What we need to do is take our everyday shoes and just go ahead and wear them to corporate worship. And then take that language on home. The same things that we talk about at corporate worship ought to be enjoyed in the home. I thought... One of the things that may be a challenge for some of our families right now is our our youth are meeting in some of our Sunday school classes with the adults. 
And I thought, I bet that might be a little bit awkward for some of the families who are not talking about and enjoying the Lord between Sundays, that they might be kind of mighty quiet in those Sunday school classes as their youth are looking at them going, man, I don't hear you talk about this between Sundays, and that now you're all spiritual. So the remedy is not, hey, youth, you don't have to come to Sunday school with us anymore because <laughs> we feel so uncomfortable with you there. The remedy is to start speaking about it, put on your everyday shoe sort of a language, enjoying the Lord between Sundays. And then it won't be so out of place for the youth on Sunday morning when they sit with you in a Bible study class. I think the important thing about telling from day to day that the Christ-adoring family participates in is that our kids learn about life through our everyday language from day to day. I was thinking about some of the things that don't happen in a moment, that take place over time. You don't get fat from a single meal. And you also don't get in great shape from a single workout. It's unfortunate, isn't it? Wouldn't that be nice? But fitness doesn't happen in a single event. It happens in a daily way over time. And that's true of this bearing tidings. The hearts of our children and the hearts of our families and the hearts of the future families that you may lead and you may shepherd will be changed and grown into spiritual fitness through a daily engagement, a daily feasting, a daily telling. You can't get it done on Sunday mornings. It's not enough. When church moves from being an activity and a place in town that you go on a day of the week and becomes an identity, then this daily telling begins to find purchase. The next thing the family participates is in declaring. So far we sing, so far we bless, we tell, and we also declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Declare means to recount. I bet you've heard this phrase before, maybe on TV from some of the old shows we watched when we were growing up. Well, I declare. That's usually a preface to, I'm about to share with you some juicy gossip. Well, I declare. Let me tell you about what I heard. Like the ungodly share a mouthful of juicy gossip and recount and declare the latest things that they've heard. The Christ-adoring families declare and recount what God has done. We've got a whole Old Testament to read and enjoy to get to know the story. If we didn't pick and choose, but we really engaged the God of this Old Testament, we would know this story, and you would be amazed how it weaves into life. The family is about the business of declaring, and the family is about declaring among the nations. This is a picture and a call of being, having a burden for Kazakhstan and for Turkey and for other countries that don't embrace the word. It's not here or there. It's not Greenville or Kazakhstan. It's Greenville and Kazakhstan that the family is to have the burden for that. And the family is actually the premium instrument for evangelism. Christy and I had the privilege of taking our kids to Cologne, Germany a few years ago. And uh, it was just two of our kids. We didn't take our youngest. We took Evan and Luke. And we had more ear with the locals there, with our family being there, than we would by ourselves. Because I went there by myself, too, before that. It was a very different reception when the family is there engaging a people, enjoying Christ out loud. The family is the premium instrument 
of evangelism here and afar. One of the things that we do once a month is we have something called mobile worship. On the last Sunday of the month, we mobilize and have what we're doing right now in a different place in town. It's a lot of work and a lot of effort, but intentionally we engage the neighborhood around that, around that area of town. And one of the things that I enjoy seeing is, is seeing whole families engaging that neighborhood as that family has a burden for near and far and declaring and recounting God's glory. Now before we consider a scribe, let's go back and just review. We, the family sings, the family blesses, the family tells, the family declares. And why do we do these things in verse 4? Because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's why he's worth paying attention right now. Even though this might be a little different from a sermon that you're accustomed to. That's why it's worth mustering every ounce of attention that you possibly can to consider, okay, family, I want to engage these verbs, every single one of them. I want to know them. I want to own these verbs because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but our Lord made the heavens. Our Lord cast Orion. Our Lord clustered the Pleiades. Our Lord scooped the oceans and piled up the mountains. That's why he's worthy of these verbs on the part of the family. Not because I'm saying we ought to do it. Because our God is worthy of these things. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The next verb is ascribe. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Ascribing is all over our Bible. There's a couple of examples. Job ascribed righteousness to God. Moses ascribed greatness to God. What it means is to give the Lord glory and strength. Now, if you think about that, that's kind of hard to understand because we know that God doesn't need anything from us. It's not like he's lacking glory or strength and we give him something that he's lacking. What it means, in essence, is that you're giving him credit in everything that has merit. If there's something in your family that has some sort of merit, there's something, someone in your family that's done something that rates praise, maybe it's a raise, maybe it's a promotion, maybe it's some sort of special recognition, maybe it's some sort of achievement, maybe you throw a great curveball, give God the credit. It means ascribing him the glory and strength. I was thinking about David with his little old blue suede tennis shoe tongue slingshot that he took down the, uh, the giant with. I bet afterwards people were saying, man, David, that was a great shot. I just can't imagine David saying, thanks, man. Thanks. I've been practicing, you know. I've been practicing knocking down Coca-Cola cans out there on the, while I'm tending to the shepherds. I bet he said, man, let's give God the glory. God directed that rock. You think there's some things that are off limits for him? Give it all to him. The family gives him credit and says, God gets the credit. The next thing that the family does, and I'm going to look at them together, is that after ascribing, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. I want to look at bringing and coming together. The word bring means to lift. So to lift an offering is what the family does. And the word to come means to penetrate. So we penetrate into His courts. 
here's what I think the family can learn from that is that if you've got to lift it, it must be more than a token. Families. We've got to lift the offering. It must be more than a token. And if his courts have to be penetrated, it must mean there's some competition for that offering. It must mean there's some obstacles to getting it into place where it should be taken. I remember whenever Rhonda came on board with Crosspoint, I didn't tell her I'm going to share this story. It's not, a, not anything that would be funny about her. It's just something that meant a lot to me. She was enjoying Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Don't turn there, just listen to this passage. She was feasting on this and enjoying this. It says, in him, the speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. She was enjoying that word, lavish. That his riches of grace, that he is just this excessive love that's directed our way. And here's the reality. Our God who has lavished on us what we needed most, his grace, should not be enjoyed with leftovers or afterthoughts or even with what we think we can afford. He gets the premium Nardic offering from Christ-adoring families. Christ-adoring families, kung fu fight the competition to penetrate into the courts with an offering that's worth lifting. The next thing that the family participates in is worship. The family sings, the family blesses, the family tells, the family declares, the family ascribes, the family brings and comes, and the family worships. Now, if we've knelt already, we've met blessing, which means kneeling. This word actually means to bow down really low. I thought about it as I was preparing this message. I actually had this in my notes before last night. To ask you the question, has your family ever seen you bow? Last night, I was talking with Christy and the kids. We had a kind of a little family meeting where we, they got a kind of an early sermon <laughs> preparation for today. I was enjoying sharing with my family. And as I was preparing these notes, I thought to myself, man, I don't think my family's ever seen me bow. Christy's seen me kneel. But I don't think my kids have ever seen their daddy, who they look to as an authority, kneel to, to a higher authority. While we engage the word together, they've never seen my body engage enjoyment of him on my face. So we as a family knelt together and then we bowed together with our face on the ground. Christ adoring families not only kneel, but they bow. They're not too civilized and not too refined to bow for the living God. Next is Christ-adoring families tremble before him. The word tremble means to dance. It's what it means. I don't know why it's not translated dance. It ought to be. It's such a great picture that Christ-adoring families and the whole earth dances for him. We all have a picture of dancing. It might be for me. It was cultivated and developed in a show that I used to watch growing up, Soul Train. Man, I love Soul Train. It was some of the best entertainment around. There's a newer version. It's called Dance 360. I don't know if it's on still or not, but these guys used to compete head-to-head for Xbox and dance their hearts out. There's some new shows on, so you think you can dance, shows like that. But the picture of the people of God, the families of the Lord, that we dance for enjoyment, 
and abandon in the gospel, in the Lord, dancing like David through the streets, celebrating and enjoying the Lord. When David wrote this psalm, this account that I'm sharing with you, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into, into Jerusalem, that's the day that he danced, the day that he got in trouble with Michael. You dancing out there in the loincloth like a silly old man. He was dancing, enjoying the Lord, the Lord with abandon. I started thinking about why it's appropriate to dance at a wedding. Because if a wedding is a picture of Christ being married to the, the church, God being married to his people, then dancing is appropriate at a wedding. And it's appropriate for the people of God who are betrothed to Christ to dance. I started thinking about some of the people that I see dance the hardest for something other than their own fame, which is really kind of the soul train dancing, the dance 360 dancing, check out my moves sort of dancing. But dancing for another some of the hardest dancing for another that I've ever seen is the pagans dancing around fire. For the sun or the moon or for a constellation in the stars or for a tiger, name it. Insert some sort of creation item in there. They dance harder for creation than we dance for the creator. And I wonder if sometimes we feel like we're too civilized for that. Christy and I, <laughs> Christy and I had a fun, funny thing happen yesterday morning. Uh, the kids got up, and we fed them breakfast, and Daniel got up a little bit late. And uh, he was in the, in the kitchen eating breakfast, and we had some David Crowder playing. Except it was actually a kid version of David Crowder, a little kid's voice, you know, and the same songs that David Crowder sings. And, and um, Daniel was sitting at the table, and Christy and I were peeking in on him. He was sitting at the table. It's freezing cold outside. He's got his muscle shirt on. He likes to show off his, his pipes, you know. <laughs> and he's got his muscle shirt <laughs> Muscle shirt on, he's eating his yogurt and syrup-covered waffle. And as he's listening to that music, man, he's swaying to that music. He's got his eyes closed. And in fact, his shoulder kind of started spilling out of that muscle shirt. And he's looking down at it like, check it out. <laughs> and he was dancing like he's never danced before. He was a, a maniac, a maniac. <laughs> it was incredible. And as we watched him... Finally, he saw us and he stopped. But the thing that I enjoyed about watching Daniel dance is I thought, man, that's the Christ-adoring family right there. The problem with Daniel is he might do that to ACDC too. <laughs> I don't know. We haven't played that for him yet. But, but the Christ-adoring family enjoys the Lord and dances. And it might be kind of weird for us to dance in a corporate worship service. I, I used to look with disdain on those who did something like that as... Um, a little bit demonstrative. I remember when I was a little kid growing up in a Baptist church, the first time I ever saw somebody raise their hands in worship, I started sweating. <laughs> For real. I started sweating. I thought they were about to get Pentecostal or something, and it just scared me to death. But man, it's all over the Word. The people of God dance. The people of God raise hands. Man, we ought to at least be able to do this in our homes. Crank the music up and dance for something that's worth dancing for. Dance around like a bunch of hooligans, laughing and enjoying the Lord with the music. David Crowder or something else cranked up. The next thing the family participates in, after singing, blessing, telling, declaring, ascribing, bringing, coming, worshiping, and trembling, slash dancing, is saying. The word say means, as you would imagine, it means to speak. And the content of what we speak is that the Lord reigns. Our Lord reigns. 
The world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The point there, I think, for the family is that we say, we speak audibly about our enjoyment of the Lord. Your family faith should be the most public thing about you. There's this weird Western thing about this private faith thing. My faith is a real private matter. I'm going to tell you, that, that's, that, that's a, what, what's called a, a paradox. In a real strict sense, it's called an oxymoron. Private faith is an oxymoron. Here's some examples of oxymorons, because I want you to see how ridiculous this is. Here's one that we used to laugh about when I was in the military. Military intelligence. That's an oxymoron. Act naturally. What do you mean? That's crazy. We're going to be alone together. You can't be alone together. It's a definite possibility. There's another one. She's a real phony. There's one. Well, I think he, it, it turned up missing. What do you mean it turned up missing? And here's one. Man, that, that guy right there, he's pretty ugly. And here's my favorite, jumbo shrimp. That's an oxymoron. Those two words don't go together. And the words for the people of God that don't go together, listen, those are funny and we can kind of laugh about them, but the one that's not funny is private faith for the family and people of God. Those don't go together. There's no such thing as private faith. Faith is out loud. Faith has voice. Faith is public. Now, I'm glad that y'all have made the journey with me through these verbs, because now we're here for the exclamation point. The families of God that are singing, blessing, telling, declaring, ascribing, bringing and coming, worshiping, trembling, and saying, we get to participate in a new verb. And the new verb is in the rest of this psalm. Look at Psalm 96, verse 11. Let, that's our next verb. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. For the families of God, those families that are participating in singing, blessing, telling, declaring, ascribing, bringing and coming, worshiping and trembling and saying, is that we let another subject participate in a whole nother verb. And that other subject is the heavens are glad when the family sings. The earth rejoices when the family blesses and tells and declares. The seas roar and all that fills it when the family is ascribing and bringing and coming and the field exults and everything in it when the families are worshiping and trembling and saying. And then the result of all those things is that the trees of the forest sing for joy. One of the things that I've appreciated about my study the last few years is recognizing that we are connected to our creation. It's not just about humanity, this whole gospel thing. God is actually redeeming all creation, and that includes the earth. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 8. If you'd like to turn there and you're quick, go for it. If not, just listen. Psalm eight, verse, uh, Romans 8, verse 19. 
It says, for the creation waits with eager longing. In, in place of creation, insert the, the, the objects from this passage. Insert heavens, insert earth, sea, insert everything in the sea, insert field, insert everything in the field, insert trees. All creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You ever thought about a tree waiting on you? You ever thought about the seas waiting on the family? That's what this means. All creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And why? Because the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's Adam. Adam subjected all creation, everything that we live in, to decay. That's why trees decay and die, because of Adam. That's why all creation is a constant state of decay. And all creation is just anxiously awaiting the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, Adam, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen, for we know that the whole creation, insert all those things we just met, the fields, the seas, all those things have been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Here's the beauty of Psalm 96. All those things, the trees, the seas, everything in it, they take a little break from groaning when the family is participating in singing, blessing, telling, and declaring. The trees, the fields, the seas, they don't groan for that moment. They celebrate because the sons of God, the families of God are doing what we were made to do. Man, in some weird way, when the family is participating in singing, blessing, telling, declaring, ascribing, all these sweet verbs that I admit are so intimidating is that the kingdom of God is ushered in. And all creation is saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Come on and liberate us, redeem us from this state of decay. The families of the God are ushering in the kingdom of God. As families worship, all creation sings. As trees clap their hands, as seas roar, the families worship and we move closer and closer to our Lord's return. That's how important the family is. And that's how important these intimidating verbs are. So imagine this setting, families. Imagine you're on a vacation to the beach, to the ocean. Imagine that you're having a picnic under a stand of trees at a picnic table and you're sitting having your ham sandwich together and Cheetos. You're enjoying each other and before long the conversation turns toward Christ and the gospel it turns toward the word that you engaged that day as a family. It turns toward God's creation and the glory that's all over, its fingerprints that are surround us. As the family begins to enjoy those things, the sea that you hear crashing against the seashore, the trees that you hear swaying above you, that they are actually celebrating what you're doing. They're saying, go family. They're saying, ascribe family. Keep doing what you're doing. Savor Him, family. Worship Him, family. Adore Him, family. Please. Because I'm anxiously awaiting redemption. It's a pretty incredible call that we have as a family in being and leading families. We have a sweet bunch, albeit intimidating, bunch of verbs to be about. It's really why our families need to have dibs. 
The first step this morning as we consider these verbs really is maybe Godward confession and repentance if our families haven't had dibs, shepherds. And the second step would be maybe family word confession. Families, I've done you an injustice. I've done you a disservice by being focused more on this, focused more on a bigger house, on more money, insert X into whatever it is that takes us away from this primary ministry that we all have. Godward repentance and then family forgiveness. Man, do it today. Do it after we dismiss this morning over lunch. Shepherds, shoot straight with your families and see how they respond. Be small enough in your own eyes where you can shoot straight with them maybe for the first time. And share with them what you hope and pray is in store. As we as a people honestly look at these verbs and swallow hard. And as we as a family work together to be the family that God wants us to be. Let me pray. Let me do something too. I want us to do something that would be appropriate for us given the passage that we've looked at. I was thinking about an area, space for you to do this. You can kneel and turn around onto your seat and just kneel and lean over onto your seat. Go ahead. If you'd like to bow and you have space to do that, then knock yourself out. Lord, as we consider these verbs, to sing, to bless, to tell, to declare, to ascribe, to bring, to come, to worship, to tremble, to say, I confess as a shepherd among these shepherds that it is an overwhelming charge. These commandments leave me partially discouraged But they inform me at least, Lord, that this is your design for the family. And I beg on behalf of the McGraws and on behalf of this people corporately that we would be about these things. That in the next few weeks and months and years that these things are developed to where we bring glory to you and to where we let the trees sing. To where we let the sea crash on the seashore enjoying what we're doing to where we let creation take a little break from groaning and let creation celebrate, if just for a few minutes, what's in store. Lord, we beg for this corporately. We pray that you'll grow us downward in humility and pray that you'll grow us upward in worship and wonder. Thank you so much for the Spirit that's at work in us to do these things. We confess that we can't muster them. We can't conjure them up. We beg you for your grace and mercy to see these things through. We love you so much, Lord. We turn the rest of this morning over to you and pray that it will be a sweet aroma to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship. Let's stand.